Well, good afternoon uh, from London, and it's Michael Minelli here uh, introducing another FS Club webinar. I'm always delighted to get to introduce these and to chair them because we learn so much. And today we have a dear friend of ours, a friend of many years, a critic of many years, John Spain. Uh, John's had an illustrious career, which you've read about, uh, including with the UK actuaries, but uh, he is currently the blog uh, writer of Discrate. And that's his blog where he is trying to get us all to think deeper, harder, and more meaningfully about our uses of the discount rates over the years. Now, you'll know me, uh, Michael Minelli, one of the directors of Zien, and I'm only able to introduce these webinars because of the tolerance, as I like to say, of our sponsors. And tolerance is a good word. They let us range widely, freely across technology, economics, and finance. And the discount rate is certainly one such issue. Many of you may recall that just over a decade ago, people were lamenting the scale of the discount rate and its applicability to technology, economics, and finance in the shape of climate change. Uh, Nick Stern's review published in 2007 indicated that were society to spend about 1% of GDP on uh, ameliorating or eliminating uh, carbon emissions, uh, we could save the planet. He later revised that to about 2%. Well, that was a definitely a macroeconomist approach to life, you know, take a problem and whisk it away with a one or 2% discount rate issue. Uh, but people then said that the discount rates were too high to take account of these longer term uh, issues. Guess what's happened? Well, the last decade, as we know, discount rates, at least the nominal ones that we use in financial analysis, have been close to zero. And we don't see ourselves making any better longer term decisions. So John's going to explore that with us today. Before we get uh, underway, three quick points of housekeeping. Firstly, yes, this is being recorded. Uh, secondly, yes, John's slides uh, are available. In fact, they're already up in the, uh, on the website. And third and most important, John is really inviting questions. That's one of the great things about this webinar series is uh, we spend half the time talking with the presenter about their thoughts on it. In this particular case, please do use the GoToWebinar question facility. I'm here with you. I'm not on WeChat or WhatsApp or Zoom or whatever. I'm here uh, with you today, and I would encourage you to feed those questions in. John will be sent all of the questions with your email attached uh, as they come in. Uh, so if we go over time or there are points of some detail, which is quite possible in today's session, uh, John will be able to get back to you directly with uh, some answers or pointers uh, to answers that might help. But with that, John, if I can uh, say with no more ado, uh, the floor is very much yours. Over to you, John. Thank you, Michael. And thank you for giving me a spot on the show. Um, everyone, welcome to Actuarial Heresy 101. You have been warned. With 33 slides, I can't possibly go through them in 20 minutes by saying every word. I'm not going to, I'm just going to pick out the bits that I really want to concentrate on. Um, I have an agenda. Yes, I do have an agenda, but it's not hidden. And I will go through this. Um, I have a few main points as well. Even if we don't know the long-term future, we do need assumptions. Today doesn't represent everything we know. We can look up at the past to see what we think happened. And that's exactly what John Mayall told us to do 60 years ago. The highlight phrase, prudence is really important. You don't know if you're being prudent, over prudent, under prudent, unless you know what your best estimate is. 
And I don't think that's been at all visible for DB funding over the last 30 years. Let's go on. Disclaimer. The UK actuarial profession does not yet endorse what I'm saying, but I hope they will at some point. Um, I'm very grateful to those who've discussed the issues over time and also to those who refuse to engage because knowing where they come from, I understand why. I am criticising the framework within which pension scheme actuaries and the pensions regulator are forced to operate. Why does it all matter? Well, from a DB pensions matter, there's a hell of a lot of money. 1.7 trillion as at 31 March 2021, a year ago, during which over 4 million private sector employees lost pension rights, valuable pension rights. DC doesn't really cut it with most typical uh, pension scheme contribution rates from the employer. And all of that is being driven by the discount process, essentially. That is the underlying problem. It matters. Following evidence is essential. And this is what we get from Gil Grissom and Nikki Alexander. We always need to know, check whether or not the evidence we have before us is complete, is it robust, is it reliable. Let me give you an example. It's very common for it to be claimed in the DB pensions arena that long-term RPI will exceed long-term CPI by around 1% a year. If you look at, I have gone forward a slide by accident, but I'm still on the evidence piece. Um, if you look back between 1975 when CPI first had some values to 2021, look at 15 year periods, the average difference between the increase in RPI to the increase in CPI was 0.72%, which actually sounds rather like 1%. However, the standard deviation was 0.1%. So to get to the full 1% from 0.72% is 2.8 standard deviations. That is huge. 1% is not a very good description of what we're talking about. So moving on to the discount process, it's not new. But we don't live in an environment, financial or otherwise, where we can be sure what's going to happen next week, next year, next 20 years or longer. It's there. Mark to market is something else. The realistic appraisal of current financial situation is a phrase I picked up from one of my former bosses. Um, and the real point is, mark to market is driven by traders, really. And that does not give us much information about future long-term trends. So we need to do something better than that. If indeed there is a long-term, one of my former bosses, a different boss, said, you can't assume that there is one. And he's right, predators exist. And we need to know how confident they can be. Discussions are essential, hopefully open discussions. And so long as the agreed approaches are fully documented, that's fine. For the moment, I'm going to assume that we do have a long term upon which we can count. One of the um, discussion points, arguments over the last 20 odd years 
in DB pensions is whether or not there is an equity risk premium upon which reliance can be placed to give a better funding picture than just relying upon conventional index linked guilt yields. If you look back over 1952 to 2021, you get an average of three and a half percent, which doesn't look bad at all. Now, if I could see the audience, I'd ask one of you to look at the 12 percent point at 1974 and somebody else to think about the average and remember it was 3.56. Pick yourselves for that. But I mean, that looks good. But if you look at the later period, recent years, it hasn't looked at all nice at all. If we move on and look, use some random numbers over the same period, over the whole period, there was over a 50% chance of getting a risk premium of 3%, 74% of getting a risk premium, which is non-zero or non-negative. Much higher in the first part of the period and quite a lot lower in the second part of this period. That is important. We have to be careful about precisely which evidence we're going to base our conclusions on. During the 1970s through the 1990s, it was common for private sector DB actuaries to take assets off market. And to do that, they generally needed, we generally needed an assumption about how much of the total return would come from income and how much from capital appreciation. And arising from conversation with somebody last week, it occurred to me that I really ought to look at that. And you can see how variable the division it is. The income is the blue line and the capital is the red line. All in all, over the whole period, yeah, 50-50 isn't that far off, but it's been hugely variable. Please note, this is based on the period 1962 to 2021 rather than 1952 to 21. And the reason for that is I didn't have the capital index alone for the previous 10 years. And if we rerun the average UK risk premium for 10 fewer years, you get a completely different position. If you look at the big yellow spot, you'll see the same 12% on the grey line on 1974. And that is the same line as we had two slides ago. No, three slides ago. Um, it's just with 10 years missing. And the table is based upon the capital growth actually endured supposed to be 50% of what it was, 75% of what it was, or all of it. And you'll see that for all of it, the gray line, the 3.56 has gone down to 2.52%. And that's just omitting 10 years. If we'd only had half of the capital appreciation, the equity premium would have been negative at nearly three quarter percent. The data I'm using for all of this are standard financials, UK equities, all share, long conventional gilts, long index link gilts, returns, yields, two inflations, I've opted for RPI, and I have split the, um, the data between two periods, early 
and later. One of the reasons for that is index linked guilt as a mature long market only became really noticeable as such in the later period. They don't really occur. Secondly, I saw something several years ago on the internet, of course, which suggested that if you do some finite difference analysis, you can spot when different behaviors can be observed. And that seemed to apply around that time. If you look at the average yield on equities, 4% overall, but 3.6 in the later period and 5.1 in the earlier period, and the return was almost twice as high at 19.1% in the earlier period compared to 10.8% in the later period. And you get a similar effect with fixed, long fixed and long conventional guilt yields. On the website, I've used random numbers to try and get some likelihoods. Um, I'm going to switch to a thousand random numbers rather than 2000. But like Mr. Loveday, I have something else in mind I would prefer to do first. I want to stress, and this comes out of something that was asked of me at an internal debate 17 years ago. Why had I not benchmarked my numbers to where we are now? It's because now is atypical of the whole continuum. Assuming we have long term return, a long term ahead of us, and that we can use a discount process, how can we assess the discount rate that should be applied? The uh, actuarial profession in the UK set up two working parties to look at this or different aspects. The first one was about methodology and the second one was about financials. The second one was closed down very quickly before we had time to frame some recommendations. And I was lucky enough to be a member of both working parties. And the second one agreed that what I call a multiple approach had some potential for this. If you take returns as percent a year over 15 years and divide that by the initial yield, that's the multiple I'm talking about, you'll see that for the whole period, equities in blue, uh, 2.6. That varies quite considerably between almost three for the early period and 2.1 for the later period. It's not quite as variable as that for long conventional gilts. This sort of approach does not work for index linked gilts. So I've chosen uh, initial yield plus 1% net of inflation. And this is really my large bugbear. Zien published a lovely confidence accounting report back in 2012, almost 10 years ago. And Simon Kahn wrote a brilliant Stable in Actuarial Society paper exposing some of the considerable uh, miscommunications that were floating about at the time. One of the things about single numbers is not only do they not tell you anything about future uncertainties, and 
whatever we can be certain about, there are definitely some future uncertainties hanging around in the air. They don't say what that single number actually means. We need to do better than that. If we knew the future, it would be great, but we don't. And I will repeat that prudence can only be identified from the best estimate. Saying that the valuation report includes what happens if you go half percent up or a half percent down doesn't really help if you don't know how strong, how strongly based the middle one is. I've always loved the Fudge, Judge and Bodge quotation from Stapleton in 1999. And there has been an element of people not being quite sure what to do. We need to be more strategic than tactical, so long as we can credibly believe we have enough time. So here is my thought experiment. Can we cope with simplicity in a mark-to-market world? There's a business being set up. We will do annuities for 15 years, a thousand pounds in arrears. We'll do a pure endowment of 10,000 in 15 years. Payments will be either fixed or fully RPI linked. And we're only looking at the basic cash flows, not demographics, not options, nothing else. How can we determine how to charge for that in advance? With a mark to market, I'm using gilt yields plus either 0% or 1%. Off market allows the longer term approach. And I have three questions. For the annuity, I want the money to run out exactly at the end. How far away will we be? For the endowment, I want them to be precisely 10 grand at the end, either fixed or inflation-proofed. How far away will we be? How far will we be successful under either pricing approach? And if we don't get it right first time, which, spoiler, we won't, how should we vary the initial discount rate that we use to get there? We have six portfolios of assets, and I have assumed, this is for the uh, sums on the website until 2019, 2.81 multiple of the initial yield, uh, 1.13 conventional gilts and your plus 1% lesser inflation for the index link gilts. I could have used a random distribution, and I'm still thinking about that. Taking the first question, think about 10 grand index linked for 15 years, invested in index linked gilts. And I'm using a blended random experience, which I call twin regime 2019 India, which is explained on the website. Um, it doesn't work very well because there's too much money, either 14,700 or 12,700 because we started off with too much money, 8,000 or 7,000. If we were able to have started on average with 5,854, in either cases, they'd both be just right and the mean end fund value would be 10,000 in real terms. 
to get that, we would have had to change the discount rate um, by 2.2% or 1.2%. And the difference of 1% is not coincidental. It's because I started with index link guilt plus 1% for off market. My second question, how often will we have enough money at the end? Not enough is terrible. Far too much is also terrible. So the midway, and I've defined that for a moment as no more than either one and 10% um, of the endowment or an annuity instalment deflated. And you'll see from these numbers, 18% um, or 30%, you don't even have enough money. And 75% or 6%, you have far too much money. That ain't good at all. That's been awful. And here's a chart. This one is on the website, and there are two others as well one about the fund experience, and the other about the adjustments that are needed. If you look at on the right, you can see what I've highlighted. The experience is the blended one I wanted. Both of them are endowments. But this one is not inflation proofed. The blue is the market value. It says MV, it should say MTM. The red ones are off market. It should say that instead of DV. And the yellow is always the difference between the left and the right. And if you look, you'll see the 75%, 60%, and 15%. What we really want is for 100% to be in the middle, the baby bear sweet spot. And we don't have that. Now, I'm going to change this chart next time I do it to show a before and after, before the adjustment and after the adjustment, as opposed to just before. If I change this to being invested in long conventional gifts, you will see that we're not doing any better, 71%, 66%, but 30%, uh, 24%, uh, not enough money. This has not worked well, has it? So these are some extracts for the same contract, same experience. You'll see the okay experience, none of them worked very well, which is a real shame. Now I'm turning to the third question. By how much do we have to change the initial discount rate? If you extend the data by a year, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. If you compare either the end of 2018 or the end of 2019 with my chosen blended experience, it's quite different. And if we look at the early part of the period to the end of 2019 against the later part of 2019 or the whole of it, you will see huge differences. This, if anything, tells us that we need to be very careful what we assume. Which data are we going to take account of?
The headline says it all. Using the discount rates, what so-called proven discount rates, had a hugely severe DP economic impact upon private sector sponsors. I reckon over just under 10 years, 100 billion was misallocated in the UK. I wish ONS would restore the MQ5 series. And then we could actually follow it on. But um, this was colossal. That is real economic damage and possibly explains some of the lack of productivity that we've had. The discount process is not robust. It's tactical rather than strategic. And yes, it was all we originally had back in um, the 1770s, right through perhaps to the 1970s. We've gone on beyond that. Fake news, it's a wonderful phrase and I think it's actually appropriate. If you have a long-term project and it needn't be purely financial, as in DB pensions, it could be some sort of construction contract. We shouldn't be using discount rates alone. If we can't do simple stuff, how can we possibly suggest, claim that we can do complicated stuff? Over the last 20 odd years, what we've really had is a playground argument. My discount rate is better than yours. We need to grow up because that is really Mrs. Doyle going on and on with her twin sister. It doesn't work. We need to grow up. We need to move on. Can we please do that? I think I'd probably come to my 20 minutes, just about, no, just beyond. Uh, so I think it's your turn now, please. What questions do we have? We can go back to different slides if that helps. John, that's super. Thank you very much for that. Um, it's a complicated argument. I, I want to unpick just a little bit of it. Folks, please do type your questions into the GoToWebinar facility. I'll feed them in. But just to get uh, started, John, um, with some, some things I think are going through people's minds. Uh, firstly, you said that um, 100 billion was misallocated. Uh, just to help us, where did that go? It went into pension schemes. I'm saying that's 100 billion more than was probably necessary. So in that sense, it's misallocated, it's gone to the wrong place. Yeah, and in an economy of 1.4 trillion, that's pretty important. Yeah, so yeah, got it. Okay. Um, the second thing is, you know, if I've, if I've got your um, argument properly, you're saying uh, stop relying on the discount process, overly simplistic, and your point there that my discount rate's better than yours, back and forth, and we're we're playing with it. Um, but you then sort of say, if I'm going to stop relying upon the discount process, um, I want to look at things like cash flow as the key elements, uh, liquidity. I, I want to look at it in the round. Uh, I'm about to make a category mistake here, I can tell. But if I had to pick one of those, which is this kind of your argument is I shouldn't. What 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 one would it be? I want to concentrate upon cash flows and make sure that liquidity will be there because one of the things that discount process does not do is indicate when you've got a liquidity problem. Mm, okay. I'm not sure if I've understood your question properly, Michael. No, no, that 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 was that was absolutely spot on, John. I'm just trying to get a handle on 
when you give people too many measures, then they fall apart and they pick the one that's convenient, which is equally bad. If you give them too strong a discipline that doesn't have solid underpinnings, then we fall into these mistakes that you've highlighted. Um, I've got a question here from Hugh Purser, um, and it's looking backwards, John. Is there a correct discount rate, at least for that could be calculated on the historic cash flows? Or can we look backwards and see that was the right discount rate? We just didn't know it when we started the series. That reminds me of Con's CAR, which basically is analogous to that. Con might want to comment. Um, I don't think that actually helps you because I'm worried about what's going to happen in the future. We might have got something right in the past over the last 10 or 15 years by luck rather than judgment, but what's it going to do over the next 10 or 15 years? Mm -hmm. I could see a few forensic situations where I might wish to have had a guess, but yeah, I, I do get your general point. I'm, I'm trying to look ahead. Um, Hugh, Hugh was also wondering if you wouldn't mind just going back to your slide 23. Um, actually, I'll, we, we've got that. Um, I'm just asking uh, Peter and Sasha if you can go to slide 23, please. Just leave it up there. While we're going back to that, uh, Dennis Leach has a question for you, John. Are you fundamentally criticizing the concept of the time value of money or just the discount rate? I think I'm probably fundamentally challenging the time value of money as measured by a discount rate. Okay. That's a, a bit of a compliment, actually, now I hear myself say that. Um, I'm saying the discount rate doesn't really help you and the time value is okay but if you don't know how to connect time of the value over time it's not going to help. Right. I think right. I probably want to think about that. Um, you know, you also mentioned, John, um, you know, there was a hugely severe uh, defined benefit economic impact in one of your slides and about this miscalculation. Um, a number of people would say, well, so what? It was prudent. We, we had more in pensions than we needed, and that was sensible, whereas you would have positioned us uh, in a slightly it's a loaded word, riskier situation or certainly closer to the line. But how might you respond to that? Well, I'm saying it was over prudent. It was excessively prudent. We saw the um, the last um, slide that I can actually see at the moment is the chart where we saw 60 to 70 uh, percent or even 80 percent with way too much money. Um, that's 32, I think, but I think somebody wanted 23, mm -hmm. which that isn't. The page, no, the slide numbers seem to have come out. Yes, they seem to have for some reason. Um, I'm just asking you to, um, come back to us with uh, which which slide and all. But while, while, he, while we're pursuing that, Hugh, if you wouldn't mind just uh, typing in 
which slide it was so that we can be sure we're on the correct one and then your question there. But meanwhile, uh, John, you very kindly mentioned... 23 is the first of the Simple Financial Contract series of nine. Ah, good. Yeah. Simplicity in the mark-to-market -market world. Um, so was there a question on that slide? Yes, that's the one. What yeah, was the question, please? Yeah, Hugh, Hugh is just typing his question in and we'll come back to that. We'll hold on this slide. Uh, John, you very kindly mentioned uh, some of the work that had been done by uh, Joshua Ronan and, and Zian and uh, a number of others at CISI and ACCA on the idea of using ranges uh, more often. And, and I appreciate that. But we, we came under a lot of criticism that our system was uh, too complex and uh, it was better to kind of lie to Aunt Agatha with a single number. Um, people might make the same uh, criticism of your proposals to be a little bit looser on, on just the discount rate. How might you respond to that? I'm quite sure they will. On the other hand, that doesn't make it wrong. Um, I keep on thinking back to being broadly right is better than being precisely wrong. One number cannot capture very much. In fact, it doesn't capture much at all. The I would like to know if I were a sponsor, responsible. And by the way, please remember the history of DB pension schemes. In most cases, employers set them up willingly. They didn't have to, except in certain situations, either to get a reduced NI contribution rate from 1978 onwards under SERPs, or if they were taking on public sector staff under some sort of tupi exercise. In summer 2003, I think it was the 8th of June, the government changed the rules very quietly and fast. They made the regulations without any consultation saying that a sovereign employer cannot walk away. And ever since then, the ratchet has gone up and up and up in the interests of, quote, prudence, close quotes. I think in 10 years time, the buyout companies are going to be rolling in it. And the uh, because they're insurance companies, they will be limited to how much they can pay out in dividends, but they can take their time over it. But an awful lot of the money that sponsors willingly or unwillingly paid in will have gone through that route because we wanted to be prudent. Not a question of running necessary risks or unnecessary risks. It's a question of being better informed. How likely is it that this will be okay in 15, 20 years time? And this sort of calculation is now practicable. Mm. Okay. So I understand the criticism. I, I just think it's misplaced. But then I can remember pension scheme act, um, trustees who didn't actually understood, understand what a, an average was. Um, yeah, I, having been on a few of those uh, trustee panels, uh, I've been there too. <laughs> um, we've got a few, a few, few points here. There. Um, it, Hugh, would, Hugh asked to bring us back to this slide. This refers to his earlier point uh, of, you know, is there a correct discount rate looking back? And he, he and he would like to draw your attention to your final point on this slide, how much is initially needed to fund basic cash flows. 
and basically he's asking, is there no benefit from studying this historically? And I kind of have some sympathy with you here. Surely we should be going back and looking at it, maybe not using the same method going forward, but does it not help to teach us something? It's possible my last line is ambiguous. What I'm saying is how much do we need at the beginning and how can we calculate it going forward from then? So at time zero, I'm saying I'm looking for mark to market at um, the index link guilt yields and I'm using that as my implicit discount raise and that tells me that for 15 years I should discount at that and that's going to give me 8,000 I think it was 8,100 and when I actually run it through the experience with actual inflation and actual returns on the assets I find that it didn't work mm. does that make it clearer what I'm doing or trying to do and does it answer the question? Okay. Um, Chris Giles makes a point that overprudence is a public policy issue as uh, Treasury is paying uh, through extensive tax relief on the employer contributions. So, that, you know, this, this overpayment is also important, I think, from a taxation point of view. Uh, so, I guess he's quite in agreement with you. But anything you'd like to comment on there? It's all very well to say that they're getting some financial benefit. On the other hand, it's costing them real money because they still have to put up the rest of the money. Um, and I don't think it's Treasury's role to say that we're giving you tax and therefore we want you to put the money in unless there's a good reason. And I'm saying that to be over prudent is diverting assets away from possibly more um, useful avenues without necessarily prejudicing the members interests mm. Mm. the pensions regulator don't want to be in a position where uh, they're going to be blamed perhaps for not making sure that xyz pension scheme was fully funded I mean, the idea of full funding within a private sector context is quite strange because if you take that out as a boundary condition, then there is no reason why a solvent sponsor can't just roll it on and pair it up. Obviously, it needs control in terms of how much is in the fund, but you don't need everything in the fund right now. Mm. Um, I have a kind of a question for you that's, um, uh, is any of this feasible at all? Just bear with me for a second, but um, you pointed out in, you know, one of your slides that um, we, we really needed to, to, to have enough time to recover. I think you said sort of, we're looking at periods of 15 years or more as the sort of idea, so as long as we credibly believe we have enough time, say 15 years or longer. And I kind of get that. In 15 years, you could do almost anything is one argument. But another argument is that we have set up these pensions. So, you know, somebody comes into 
uh, a pension plan at the age of you know, 18 even is possible. They're popping out at 65. Uh, and then we're trying to forecast what they need to take out and longevity, et cetera. It's almost like too long a period of time. Would any tool work? And then a sub supplementary question to that is, what about approaches which would, at least in, in, in pension terms, as opposed to the wider discount rate terms, in pension terms would say, well, I'm only actually going to let you retire uh, in a year or two from now with a pot, and then I will guarantee you that payment. So in other words, we're, we're reducing the longevity risk in, in the pension system. One point I haven't made, um, I took it for granted is, longevity and other demographic stuff is far less important than the financials. Small changes in the financial assumptions can have huge impact. Um, and yeah, somebody coming in at 18, retiring at 67, 68, um, it's a long, long time. So it's 50 years plus 30 or 40 years allowing for um, a widow or widower, um, a very long time, but you're going to keep on um, reviewing it every three years. In practice, though, you won't find anybody coming in at 18 because almost nobody in the private sector has an open pension scheme. Everybody is 40 plus. Mm. But and the final, it is a very, very long time. Okay. And the final question for you, um, given the topicality of climate change and you know, COP and all of that lately, and the fact that Nick Stern's review back in 2007 was seen as quite fundamental and used a discount rate approach. <laughs> Any advice for those who are applying discount rates in the climate change here outside of pensions? I haven't got my head around how far that will have an impact on investment returns. And I don't think anybody has really published much on that, which is of help. Um, for sure, looking back, doesn't give all the answers. It does raise some questions, but it doesn't give all the answers. Um, and the investment returns are going to be found in different places. Okay. Well, John, um, firstly, thanks so much for coming on today. Um, Thank you for having me. A very complex subject, and it's one that uh, I must say I had the benefit of seeing the slides in advance, and I, I too went through them twice before we started, and they are very, very helpful. You're raising, I think, a, a really important concern, one that we don't pay enough attention to, and so I'd like to thank you. <clears throat> I'd also like to thank our sponsors. You do let us range over quite a wide variety of topics. This is a highly technical one, but as John pointed out, you know, it may be complex, but we do have to get it right. And we can get it right with the tools that are available today. We're not stuck where we were. We should be learning. And learning is what this is all about. I'd also like to thank you, the audience. Um, we've got quite a few questions uh, here, which will be sent on, on to John. And I thank you for participating today. And finally, looking ahead, we have a number of sessions coming up, uh, not least uh, next week, Thursday, uh, a one of a personal nature, how to keep yourself personally safe online. 
in cybersecurity. Uh, and then moving on, as ever, please do go and look at the website. But John, if I may, uh, my, my most sincere thanks to you. You put a lot of work into this today, work that's appreciated. And I would uh, suggest to people that you do check out the Disgrade blog. Uh, there, there is a link on the website, but I think you can work it out yourself, uh, D-I-S-C-R-A-T-E. John is constantly thinking on behalf of all of us about what matters in this space, and he does appreciate uh, feedback. So I'd like to say thanks again, John. And unfortunately, our technology doesn't allow us to do a thank you properly, but I do have a technical device here, my Korean karmic clapper, which is what I'm afraid I have to do to open the floodgates of applause. It does perfectly, Michael. Thank you. We look forward to having you back as your thinking develops even further. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. Bye now, everybody. Bye.